Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I'm going to be so old in like a month. (laughs) (laughs) So old. (laughs) Well, think of it this way. Better than the alternative? Half of our listener base is either my mom or your parents. So you're younger than most of our listeners. I don't think that's half of our listener base. That would mean we have six listeners. Yeah, I know. I I exaggerate for comedy. Oh, it's I'm so old. Yeah, my oh, right before we started recording, I was telling Ken I'm excited. I'm excited to see him in six weeks when he comes on the ship. And he goes, "Well, I hope I'm there before six weeks because then I'll miss your birthday." And I went, "Oh yeah, it's like a month away." And then I realized I turned the big four zero in like four weeks, and that's weird because I don't I don't know how 40 is supposed to feel but I don't feel it (laughs) so all of these big mile marker birthdays that that I've celebrated through the years uh, I feel like the only one that I celebrated and went like yeah now I feel the way I'm supposed to was 18 18 and think, since then, it's like, I thought I was supposed to feel more grown up at 21. I thought I was supposed to feel more grown up at 25. I thought I was at 27, at 30, at 35. And I'm just like, yeah. no, no, I still pretty much feel like an 18-year-old. Yeah, uh, I think 21. Except for when I hang out with 18-year-olds. Well, yeah, yes. And then you really realize that you are not 18 anymore. Like, you have to remember 18-year-olds now were born in the 2000s. We're born the, in the aughts. Yeah. Yeah. So anything that is nostalgic to us is like retro, a.k.a. antique to them because yeah. it literally did not happen in their lifetime. Yeah, I was watching a TikTok or a reel or something on Instagram like uh, this morning, and it was this woman asking her 15-year-old nephew questions, and it was quite funny. It was like, it was like, Hey, Andrew, what's dial up? And he was like, dial up, uh, like when you dial a phone. Hey, Andrew, what's a collect call? And he goes, it's the system that collects the phone numbers that are called. And like, he, like <laughs> it was like, who, oh, my favorite one was, hey, Andrew, who's Zach Morris? Trash. And Well, yes, Zach Morris is trash. There's a whole podcast for that. But he was, I forget what he said. He was like. Oh, he said a street musician. Uh, no, a street magician. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I bet Zach Morris, after he got like fired from his job for sexual harassment or something, uh, ended up as a street magician. <laughs> he probably did a stint as a street performer, like, or at least a street worker. Yeah. I, well, yes. <laughs> and that's nothing against uh, John Paul Gosling. That's a, that was. He's a very John Paul. Ryan Gosler. Gosler. Mark Paul Gossler. Mark Paul Gossler. I knew, I was like, I don't think it's John Paul. That's way too, like, Christian. Mark Paul's pretty Christian, too, but. 
Um, but yeah, you know, so John John Paul Gosler the third. Pope the third. John Paul Gosler. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I've seen recently, um, can continuing this trend of what it's like to be a little too old, is uh <laughs> it was hey, kids who are getting ready to go to college. You really need to brush up on your 80s and 90s pop culture trivia, particularly Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Princess Bride, and seasons two through five of The Simpsons, because your professors, who are mostly going to be young Gen Xers and older millennials, are going to try to connect to you by making references to these bits of media, and they're going to be really upset if you don't get their jokes. I feel really attacked because I've taught (laughs) in college, and I have definitely had moments where I made a reference to something thing and then just saw the looks of like huh <laughs> like and I went oh god you guys yeah. weren't alive ah! <laughs> like, so I'm like I was very nervous when I taught that and I was what how old was I then I was 34 34 33 34 and I was such a dork I was such a dorky teacher thank god they all loved me because I, I I owned my dorkness but um I made a lot of those like nostalgia references that just sure. made them go okay Miss Lawler okay Professor Lawler as they called me and I'm like please don't call me Professor Lawler please call me Heather I'm not a professor and also like <laughs> but I think of like my social studies teachers in high school who would try to connect with us by making Gilligan's Island references and and like oh that's you had a social the, studies the, professor that used Gilligan's same, Island <laughs> it's the same thing it's the Aww. same because Gilligan's Island was was you know 20 years before we were born I don't think any of my teachers went with those references. Maybe that was a Minnesota thing. I don't know, like like Duck Duck Greg Duck or whatever that is. Duck Duck Duck, Grey Duck, yeah. It's Duck Duck Goose, baby. (laughs) Only if you're wrong. Um, (laughs) Also, pineapple belongs on pizza. I want to see how many people I can piss off in the next like thirty seconds. (laughs) Wait, it does. Pineapple does belong on pizza. It absolutely fucking does. And anyone who says it doesn't can go. Well, and I'm not saying universally. I'm not saying every pizza should have pineapple. I'm just very (laughs) pro-choice. Yeah, I, I actually said the same thing. I saw somebody comment do the pineapple on pizza thing the other day. And I literally went, why can't people in this country just mind their fucking business? Like, it doesn't matter. I I feel the same way about, there are people who have weirdly strong opinion over um, uh, whether the toilet paper flap should fall over or under the roll. Now, the only reason I have any opinion one way or the other is because I know if the toilet paper falls over the top of the roll, it's much easier for your cat to just decide to unroll the whole fucking thing. Whereas if it goes under, if they reach up and start playing with it, it's just going to flip over and over and over and over and over again. It's not going to unspool. So that is the only reason I have an opinion one way or the other there. I'm a strong waterfall over because it makes it easier to access. And as a woman, uh, I I use toilet paper more than a man, but I am not pissed at anybody who does it the other <laughs> way. Again, it is a point of and like our cat Lina does not do that. Doesn't do that. But no. but I had a cat when we were a kid that absolutely did that. So yeah, I mean, again, let people live their lives. That's what have I learned in my forty years? Fucking mind your business. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Hi, welcome to Campfire Classics. 
so welcome to Campfire Classics, a very preachy podcast about completely unimportant social topics. I don't know if that was preachy. I think it was just like fucking facts. It's like you can't make everyone like you and mind your business. <laughs> I just... can make everyone like me. <laughs> I just don't want to. What the fuck? And and here's a fun fact, baby. You can't. You can't make everybody like you. Uh, I've been. I. I. It took me a long time to learn that. I'm still learning it, but it's just a fact. <laughs> It'll make life. These are the wisdom of Heather's forty years, brought to you by Campfire Classics. <laughs> da, 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 da. The more you know, bitches, and that's also a throwback reference. reference that will not be picked up on by today's college students. Nope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and knowing is half the battle. Uh, so uh, welcome to Campfire Classics, where we wax nostalgic before getting to what we actually do. Uh, and what Which we is even more nostalgic, because we is, throw back even farther. Yeah, is is nostalgic for... Um, Our parents. For people much <laughs> older than us. Well, yeah. Uh, Today's story certainly predates nostalgia for our parents, too. Yes. Um, so uh, what we do is we read short stories that we find out of the public domain. They are read sight unseen for the first time for you, dear listener, recorded and thrown out into the universe with all the warts and misunderstandings and horrifying mispronunciations that come along the way. Warts? Metaphorical are- warts. Oh, I was like, does does our does our podcast reading have like a weird STD? I don't like it. Although I, I do I do have one on the end of my thumb. Well, on the joint of my thumb. You have a wart? Well, it's a, it's a little bump. I don't know if it's uh, actually a wart. I've gotten planner's warts on my feet. Those aren't fun. Yeah. Those yeah. Those are um, not fun. But anyway. Sometimes the warts turn into sex jokes. Uh, well, yes. Sometimes many a, of the words turn into sex jokes. So warts, yeah. It's, 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 yes. it's, a, it's, let's be, it's a short walk. It, it is it's a very a short, short walk, walk to get there. And it's a really um, short walk when you have a planter's wart because it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Heather's, is, Heather, Heather's feisty today. <laughs> this is the vibe today, huh? All right. I've uh, had two cups of coffee. I fly out tomorrow and I'm, I've got a lot of energy. So let's fucking do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so typically before uh, before we start reading a story, um, the person who selected the story reads some fun facts to get us in the mood. Uh, and this week I have selected a story to Heather. And this week I have selected a story for Heather to read. However, before I get to the fun facts, um, uh, uh, last week's episode, I did a, a little word of the week. And we asked listeners to write in with times that they have used that word over the past week. Unfortunately, as of the recording of this episode, that episode hasn't dropped yet. So I have no idea if that segment was popular or got a response. I liked it. Because I have no idea, we're doing it again. Have you ever found yourself awake before dawn and you can't fall back asleep and you're tired, but you just keep worrying about the day ahead and that makes it worse? That's called anxiety. It's called <laughs> utkiare. Utkiare? Utkiare. It's, it's an old English word and it is a noun that, that means that pre-dawn anxiety. When you wake up before you want to wake up, and then you can't fall back asleep because you're worried about the day ahead. I literally just was telling you before we started recording, 
that that's what happened to me this morning. Yeah. That happens to me a lot, actually. Most mornings, yeah. Ut, ut, I get utkiare like utkiare utkiare like every day. That yeah. that's a normal morning in my life. <laughs> so you regularly experience utkiare, which again I kind of just used to call anxiety, but yep. I like utkiare better. It sounds really really much cooler. <laughs> utkiare utkiare. Um, so anyway, uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is find an excuse to use that word in the coming week and then write into 5050 Arts Production or any of our social medias at Campfire Classics and let us know how that went and just how funny was the look that you got for using that word in a conversation. And if you can find a way to use last week's word and this week's word into a, into a conversation, you're going to get some really weird looks. So I was suffering from Utkiare this morning and I decided to make myself some food in hopes that it would calm me down and I left the titty nopes on the plate. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on to fun facts. All right. Uh, so this week we are revisiting a an author and in fact a character that we have hit before. Gentleman Thief and French counterpart to Sherlock Holmes, Monsieur Arsène Lupin. Fuck. <laughs> Say French words. <laughs> Created by Maurice Marie Emile LeBlanc, who we covered a bit in season two, episode six, The Drag Queen Chaperone. Who I just call Matt LeBlanc from France. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arsène Lupin has uh, developed into one of those characters who has sprawled well beyond his original creation. Uh, He is a thief, a gentleman about town, sometimes a crime solver, and the main character of 17 novels and 39 novellas and short stories for a collected total of 24 books by Monsieur LeBlanc. Actually, it's 25 books if you count the 1923 novel The Secret Tomb, in which Lupin does not actually appear, but the main character, Dorothy, solves one of his four fabulous secrets. Oh, I tried to figure okay. out what those fabulous cool. secrets are. Um, is, but he, I was, is he in the closet? <laughs> that's probably one of them. Um, fabulous but secrets. Anyway, I, was, I was worried about possible spoilers Got for it. future stories, yep. so I didn't dig too deep. Uh, yep. Lupin is also the star of five plays, more than 30 books by other authors after uh, LeBlanc, uh, 26 movies, 10 TV series, including including one new one on Netflix as of 2021, several comic books, a run of Japanese manga, and a spinoff of the character named Arpin Lucien instead of Arsène Lupin. Um, appears in the Donald Duck universe. Amazing. Where he travels to Duckburg to rob the money bin, which is Uncle Scrooge's vault. Uh, But he is eventually foiled by Donald and the junior woodchucks, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. As as he should be. So wait, what was the TV show in 2021? Uh, It's called Lupin. It is a French net series that you can find on Netflix. Okay. And it's basically, um, the, the idea is that the main character is like the grandson or something of Arsène Lupin. Because it has definitely popped up on my Netflix, which is why I asked. I'm like, wait, what? Where is this? It has definitely popped up on my Netflix. I was like, you might like. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's sort of a, it's sort of a um, 
crime heist thriller yeah. series. Where yeah, and the, I've heard really good things about it. Like people the, the said main it's character is like a, an art thief or something who yeah. is the grandson of Arsène Lupin, which is awesome. Love that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's who we're dealing with. But as I as I said, we I actually covered uh, Maurice LeBlanc in pretty decent detail back in the episode of the Drag Queen Chaperone, which will be linked in the the doubly schmutz stuff. Doobly, the doubly schmutz, yeah. The doobly schmutz, the show that notes. Is the technical. <clears throat> um, so if you want to hear more details about him, you can check that. Check it. Anyway, today uh, you will be reading uh, a mystery uh, about Arsène Lupin from Maurice LeBlanc called The Black Pearl. Ooh, like the ship in the pirates. <laughs> <laughs> like the ship in the pirates. All right, let's do it. Let's start this fire. The Black Pearl from The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. By Maurice LeBlanc. A violent ringing of the bell awakened the concierge of number nine, Avenue Hooch. (laughs) (laughs) Avenue Hooch. All right, a bunch of drunks. Avenue Hooch. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't think it's pronounced Hooch. It's spelled H-O-C-H-E. Hooch. But I'm calling it. But it's it's hooch and it's hooch when I read it. Hoke? Hang on. You think it's hoke? Um. <laughs> Is it pronounced hooch? No, it's not. Uh. However, you want to know how it translates into English from French? Absolutely. Worry, concern, anxiety, uneasiness, or alarm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will Osh. say, I- it's hoche. Osh, like you, Osh. like the H is silent ish. The H is, I mean, it's French. The H is almost always silent. Osh, oh, yeah, because I know that. <laughs> Osh. All right, so, so it's not nine, Avenue. Avenue Osh. Avenue Osh. Okay, not Avenue not, Anxiety. Avenue Anxiety. I the mean, the story fuck. takes place on Anxiety Street. Wow, <laughs> that sounds like my home address, bitches. <laughs> All right, let's let's start again. We're not on Avenue Hooch, we're on Avenue Anxiety. Okay. A violent ringing of the bell awakened the concierge of number nine, Avenue Ouch. She pulled the door string grumbling. I thought everyone was in. It must be three (laughs) o'clock. Perhaps it is someone for the doctor, muttered her husband. At that moment, a voice inquired, Dr. Harl, what floor? A third floor left, but the doctor won't go out at night. He must go out tonight. Oh, no. Uh Oh, Oh, no. Medical emergency. The visitor entered the vestibule, ascended to the first floor, the second, the third, and without stopping at the doctor's door, he continued to the fifth floor. There he tried two keys. One of them fitted the lock. He's bad at following directions. Wait. Didn't he just ask to go see the doctor and then he, did. he and then did skipped not. the doctor's floor? This guy's up to no directions. fucking good. <laughs> oh sure, I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt and assuming he's stupid. Uh, I, see, I think he knows exactly what he's doing. 
Ah, good, he murmured. That simplifies the business wonderfully. But before I commence work, I had better arrange for my retreat. Let me see. Have I had sufficient time to rouse the doctor and be dismissed by him? Not yet. A few minutes more. <laughs> oh, shit. He's like, hmm. Does, does this seem legit yet? No, I think I'm going to sit down and maybe watch a quick episode of Friends or something. <laughs> no, I, st I still got a minute. We're good. I'm going to have a, have a shot or something. At the end of ten minutes, he descended the stairs, grumbling noisily about the doctor. Well, this guy's a hell of an actor. Look at this. <laughs> so this is this is Lupin, I'm assuming. I'm assuming, yeah. Or someone trying to be like him or something, yeah. The concierge opened the door for him and heard it click behind him. But the door did not lock, as the man had quickly inserted a piece of iron in the lock in such a manner that the bolt could not enter. Then, quietly, he entered the house again, unknown to the concierge. In case of alarm, his retreat was assured. Noiselessly, he ascended to the fifth floor once more. In the antechamber, by the light of his electric lantern, he placed his hat and overcoat on one of the chairs, took a seat on another, and covered his heavy shoes with felt slippers. Oh, it's like he knows what he's doing. It's like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> well, we're, we're watching that scene at the end of Ocean's Eleven right now. We're yes. watching the whole thing play out. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm imagining this guy looks like George Clooney. So, you're, you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> uh, where'd he go? Oof, here I am and how simple it was. I wonder why more people do not adopt the profitable and pleasant occupation of burglar. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, buddy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why don't more people just break the law? With a little care and reflection, it becomes a most delightful profession. Not too quiet and monotonous, of course, as it would then become worries, weary, wearisome? Wearisome. Wearisome. It would make you weary. It would yeah, make well, you yeah. tired. No, I know what it means. I just, I don't think I've ever used that word. Like, oh. worrisome. Like, I'm weary of something, but I don't think I've ever used it in the context wearisome. of wearisome. <laughs> All right. So, he, he likes what he does. You know, I mean, you know. Most if it, things, if they are too quiet and monotonous, become wearisome. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I, and clearly this man likes what he does. It's like, yeah. it's like. If you go to work and it's not work, then you're living your dream. <laughs> if, if you find a way to earn your living doing what you love, you'll never work a work day, a day in, your in your life. There's your uh, motivational poster for the day. <laughs> he unfolded a detailed plan of the apartment. Let me commence by locating myself here. This dude I, talks to himself a lot. He does. <laughs> he is monologuing to himself. I mean, this is a great way to get caught. I mean, when you're a burglar, who else do you have to talk to? You gotta like keep yourself entertained. I talk to myself all the fucking time. I, I will straight up tell. I'm gonna admit that right now. When I live by myself, like when I'm in my cabin in the like on the ship, I talk out loud. I like monologue what I'm doing a lot. Which is fine. <laughs> But if you were uh, trying to be quiet, around, <laughs> if you were sneaking around into the guest cabins, you probably wouldn't be having a full on conversation <laughs> with yourself while you were doing it because you don't want to draw attention to the fact there's someone there. That is accurate. <laughs> 
He's talking very quietly, I guess. <laughs> or, may, uh, yeah, he's just... Well, I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> Here I see the vestibule in which I am sitting. On the street front, the drawing room, the boudoir, and the dining room. Useless to waste any time there, as it appears the Countess has deplorable taste. <laughs> Not a bibelette of any bitch. value. This tacky ass bitch. What's a bibelette? I'm guessing like, like uh, tchotchke. I'm guessing Bibelot. it's like a bibelot, bibelot of any value. A small decorative ornament or trinket. Tchotchke. Tchotchke. Bibelot. He's speaking French. Bibelo. Yeah. Notice how I've not given him any kind of dialect. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> not a bibelo of any value. Now, let's get to business. Ah, here is a corridor. It must lead to the bedchambers. At a distance of three meters, I should come to the door of the wardrobe closet, which connects to the chamber of the countess. He folded his plan, extinguished his lantern, and proceeded down the corridor, counting his distance thus. One meter, two meters, three meters. Here's the door. Mon Dieu, how easy it is. <laughs> he is just talking out loud. <laughs> well, and he's walking across one bedroom to... Yeah. A door into the countess's bedroom. Yeah. So he's like, he is now just standing on the other side of the door where presumably this rich old woman with terrible taste is sleeping. Who is he's apparently. Like, oh God, this is so easy. Apparently the countess is also deaf um, <laughs> or a very heavy sleeper. Maybe he drugged her earlier or something. <laughs> so he knows that she is, she is, uh knocked out or something. Yeah. Uh. I don't know. Let's find out. Only a small, simple bolt now separates me from the chamber, and I know that the bolt is located exactly one meter, 43 centimeters from the floor, so that thanks to a small incision I am about to make, I can get rid of the bolt. He drew from his pocket the necessary instruments. Then the following idea occurred to him. Suppose by chance the door is not bolted. I will try that first. <laughs> <laughs> this could be even easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> he turned the knob and the door opened. Yeah. <laughs> Always check the knob first. Oh, my. <laughs> Ask you permission should, first. So. You should always pull on the knob. Pull on the knob. <laughs> Grab the knob, twist the knob, give the knob a good tug. Give the knob some lovin'. My brave Lupin, surely fortune favors you. What's to be done now? You know the situation of the rooms. You know the place in which the Countess hides the black pearl. Therefore, in order to secure the black pearl, you have simply to be more silent than silence, more invisible than darkness itself, as he talks out loud. Yep. <laughs> so I'm assuming in as reality... He talks out loud now that the door is open. Open, so he's like in her room. Uh, I'm assuming all of this monologue is actually inner monologue, but because it's in quotations, it sounds like he's talking out, like yeah. out loud. It's really funny. 
Arsène Lupin was employed fully a half hour in opening the second door, a glass door that led to the Countess's bedchamber. Okay, so he wasn't okay. in her room. He was like in her closet. <laughs> so he was in the closet, <laughs> which are one of his four fabulous secrets, as we're yep. talking about. Hey, look, look at that. Did not plan that. And there it is. But he accomplished it with so much skill and precaution that even had the Countess been awake, she would not have heard the slightest sound. According to the plan of the rooms that he holds, he has merely to pass around the reclining chair and, beyond that, a small table close to the bed. On the table, there was a box of letter paper and the black pearl was concealed in that box. He stooped and crept cautiously over the carpet following the outlines of the reclining chair. When he reached the extremity of it, he stopped in order to repress the throbbing of his heart. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes when you're giving the knob some love, you have to repress a little throbbing. Yeah, you gotta like take a deep breath because it's throbbing. Although he was not moved by any sense of fear, he found it impossible to overcome the nervous anxiety. Well, you're on anxiety street, so that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) It became impossible to overcome the nervous anxiety that one usually feels in the midst of profound silence. That circumstance astonished him because he had passed through many more solemn moments without the slightest trace of emotion. No danger threatened him. Then why did his heart throb like a alarm bell? Was it that sleeping woman who affected him? Uh-oh. <laughs> he got a fang for the countess. Uh-oh. That's not good. Uh-oh. <laughs> I thought the, the tacky old bitty had already rubbed him the wrong way, and now... Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Was it that sleeping woman who affected him? Was it the proximity of another pulsating heart. God, this is hot. (laughs) He listened and thought he could discern the rhythmical breathing of a person asleep. It gave him confidence, like the presence of a friend. Oh, it's because he does everything alone, (laughs) so he's never in the same room with another human being. (laughs) It's kind of sad, actually. (laughs) He sought and found the armchair, then, by slow, cautious movements, advanced towards the table, feeling ahead of him with outstretched arm. His right hand touched one of the feet of the table. Ah, now he had simply to rise, take the pearl, and escape. That was fortunate, as his heart was leaping from his breast like a wild beast and made so much noise that he feared it would awake the countess. This guy's sounding less and less like George Clooney and more and more like Jim Carrey in The Mask. It's Jim Carrey, yeah. No, it's Jim Carrey. Okay, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, By a powerful effort of the will, he subdued the wild throbbing of his heart and was about to rise from the floor when his left hand encountered, lying on the floor, an object which he recognized as a candlestick. An overturned candlestick. Oh, no! We're in Clue! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the In the bedchamber with the candlestick, the countess. Oh, no. <laughs> and now Jim Carrey is playing the butler. A moment later, his hand encountered another object, a clock, one of those small traveling clocks covered with leather. Well, 
What had happened? He could not understand that candlestick, that clock. Why were those articles not in their accustomed places? Ah, what had happened in the dread silence of the night? Suddenly a cry escaped him. He had touched, oh, some strange unutterable thing. No, no, he thought, it cannot be. It was some fantasy of my excited brain. For 20 seconds, 30 seconds, he remained motionless, terrified. His forehead bathed with perspiration and his fingers still retained the sensation of that dreadful contact. Making a desperate effort, he ventured to extend his arm again. Once more, his hand encountered that strange, unutterable thing. He felt it. He must feel it and find out what it is. He found that it was hair, human hair and a human face. And that face was cold, almost icy. Ooh, someone beat him. Someone beat him to the punch, man. Someone came in and wanted that black pearl. (laughs) Yeah, but they weren't all classy about it. They went fucking thug murder. Yeah, they went thug murder. Or she woke up and like they had to, you know, they they candlesticked her. (laughs) Yeah. You know, was it, Miss, was it Mrs. White or Colonel Mustard? Let's find out. <laughs> However frightful the circumstances may be, a man like Arsène Lupin controls himself and commands the situation as soon as he learns what it is. So, Arsène Lupin quickly brought his lantern into use. A woman was lying before him, covered with blood. Her neck and shoulders were covered with Gaping wounds. Ew! <laughs> God damn! He leaned over her and made a closer examination. She was dead. You think? Well, yeah. <laughs> good, good call, motherfucker. <laughs> I would say uh, no shit, Sherlock, but it's no shit, Arsène Lupin. So. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, Arsène. No, no. No, there's not a good one. No, no, there's Lupin. Not, no, no. Uh, no ass arsene. <laughs> dead, dead, he repeated with a bewildered air. He stared at those fixed eyes, that grim mouth, that livid flesh, and that blood, all that blood which had flowed over the carpet and congealed there in thick black spots. This is gross. <laughs> <laughs> He arose and turned... All of a sudden, we're a true crime podcast. (laughs) We're just jumping genres, that's all. He arose and turned on the electric lights. Then he beheld all the marks of a desperate struggle. The bed was in a state of great disorder. On the floor, the candlestick and the clock with the hands pointing to 20 minutes after 11. Then further away, an overturned chair and everywhere there was blood. Spots of blood and pools of blood. Fucking A, man. And the black pearl, he murmured. I love that he's like staring at a fucking gruesome crime scene. And he's like, oh yeah, but is that jewelry still here? I came to steal. That's right. I'm here to commit a crime too. The box of letter paper was in its place. He opened it eagerly. The jewel case was there, but it was empty. Fuck, he muttered. I'm guessing that is uh, French for fuck. Fitcha. Fichtre. (laughs) It's Fish. damn. Damn. I'm I like fuck. <laughs> it's it is it is a um a It's an exclamation. <laughs> socially inappropriate expletive. Oh great, then fuck. Fitch or fuck, he muttered. <laughs> you boasted of your good fortune 
much too soon, my friend Lupin. <laughs> you also have been talking to yourself too much. So that's yeah, there's that. <laughs> stop, stop, uh, uh, stroking your own ego there. You're stroking your own, uh, your, your, own knob. your own knob. Yes. With the Countess lying cold and dead and the black pearl vanished, the situation is anything but pleasant. Get out of here as soon as you can or you may get into some serious trouble. <laughs> get out of here. Yes, of course, any person would, except Arsène Lupin. He has something better to do. Now to proceed in an orderly way. At all events, you have a clear conscience. Conscience. That's a hard word for me always. <laughs> Let us suppose that you are the commissary of police and that you are proceeding to make an inquiry concerning this affair. Yes. But in order to do that, I require a clearer brain. Mine is muddled like a ragu. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he's hungry. He tumbled into an armchair with his clenched hands pressed against his burning forehead. Also, you're leaving, dunk, like, dunk. fingerprints everywhere, bitch. <laughs> like, like I, I'm assuming he has gloves on, probably. Possibly, but also... Uh, this is probably predates uh, fingerprinting. This Yeah, I wonder when that became a thing. It used to be much easier to be a criminal. <laughs> oh, uh, so no. it was relatively new. Okay. Okay. Uh, it started being used in like crime scene investigation to identify criminals uh it happened for the first time in 1901 oh wow so it's around but, but it's not it's, common yeah, yeah and it's not an exact it wasn't an exact sign and they probably didn't have a like fingerprint database like they do now of criminals like they right. keep they keep because they didn't have computers so like um yeah it was like a last-ditch effort kind of situation and as opposed to a go-to. The Sheffer case of 1902 is the first case of the identification, arrest, and conviction of a murderer based on fingerprint evidence. Oh, shit. All right. Wow, that is older than I thought it would be. Um, yep. That's, that's cool. All right. So we have reached this. He's sitting in the armchair, and he's decided to stay. And then we have a line, and much like you just said, doom, doom. Yeah, <laughs> we take a law and order. break. This is law and order. It'd be doom, doom. Okay. The murder of the Avenue Osh is one of those which have recently surprised and puzzled the Parisian public. And certainly, I should never have mentioned the affair if the veil of mystery had not been removed by Arsène Lupin himself. No one knew the exact truth of the case. Who did not know, from having met her in the boys, the fair Lyotan Zalati? That sounds great. The once famous Catatrice? What's a Catatrice? Cantatrice? Cantatrice? Canta singer? Cantata? Yeah, like... Yep. Uh, Cantatrice, a woman who is a singer, especially opera. Cantatrice. Okay, cool. The once famous Cantatrice, wife and widow of the Count Dionli. Good. Dion Dillo. Dandio. Dan. Dan. Dylan. Count Dylan. Count Dylan. Count Dylan. I like that. <laughs> of the Count 
Dylan. And Zalati, whose luxury dazzled all Paris some 20 years ago, the Zalati who acquired a European reputation for the magnificence of her diamonds and pearls, it was said that she wore upon her shoulders the capital of several banking houses and the gold mines of numerous Australian companies. <laughs> Fuck. That was heavy. Skillford... Bleh. Skillful jewelers worked for Zalati as they had formerly wrought for kings and queens. And who does not remember the catastrophe of which all that wealth was swallowed up? Of all that marvelous collection, nothing remained except the famous Black Pearl. The Black Pearl. That is to say a fortune if she had wished to part with it. But she preferred to keep it, to live in a commonplace apartment with her companion, her cook, and a manservant, rather than sell an inestimable, ines, fuck, rather than sell that inestimable, <laughs> inestimable, inestimable. It does not sound like a real word when you say it out loud. Inestimable, rather than sell that inestimable. <laughs> And now I've added extra syllables. Inestimable. Inestimable. <laughs> Count Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than sell that inestimable. Okay, I got a good take on it at some point. Inestimable. Go, try priceless. No, I got it. Rather than sell that. <laughs> English is a weird language, y'all. <laughs> Rather than sell that inestimable jewel, there was a reason for it. A reason she was not afraid to disclose. The black pearl was a gift. Was, mm -mm. A reason she was not able to disclose. The black pearl was the gift of an emperor. Ooh. Almost ruined and reduced to the most mediocre existence, she remained faithful to the companion of her happy and brilliant youth. Oh. Sound a little bit like Scandal in Bohemia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Black Pearl never left her possession. She wore it during the day and at night concealed it in a place known to her alone. Well, not really. Arsene Lupin knew where Arsene it was. Arsene Lupin knew. <laughs> And apparently this guy who murdered or this person who murdered her uh, knew where it was, too. <laughs> All these facts being republished in the columns of the public press served to stimulate curiosity. And strange to say, but quite obvious to those who have the key to the mystery, the arrest of the presumed assassin only complicated the question and prolonged the excitement. Two days later, the newspapers published the following item. Information has reached us of the arrest of Victor Dandre, the servant of the Countess Dillon. The evidence against him is clear and convincing. On the silken sleeve of his livered... Liveried? Not liveried. liveried. <laughs> yes, not livered waistcoat. That's gross. <laughs> On the silken sleeve of his livered... You have livery... a made of liver? <laughs> gross. That's some fucking uh, Hannibal Lecter shit right there. On the silken sleeve of his liveried waistcoat with 
Chief Detective Dudois found on his garret between the mattresses of his bed. Several spots of blood were discovered. In addition, a cloth-covered button was missing from the garment, and this button was found beneath the bed of the victim. It is supposed that after dinner, in place of going to his own room, D'Andre slipped into the wardrobe closet and through the glass door had seen the countess hide the precious black pearl. This is simply a theory, as yet unverified by any evidence. <laughs> but we're going to publish it in the fucking newspaper. This sounds but, act, this this sounds right. <laughs> but based on no actual evidence, we have arrested this guy and are announcing to the public that he's probably a murderer. That he's a shithole. What shit could hole. possibly go wrong? Nothing could go wrong, of course. There is also another obscure point. At 7 o'clock in the morning, Dandre went to the tobacco shop on the Boulevard de Corcelles. The concierge and the shopkeeper both affirm this fact. On the other hand, the countess's companion and cook, who sleep in the end of the hall, both declare that when they arose at 8 o'clock, the door to the antechamber and the door of the kitchen were locked. These two persons have been in the service of the Countess for 20 years and are above suspicion. Which means they did it. Which means clearly, one of them did it, yeah. Clearly. The question is, how did Dandre leave the apartment? Did he have another key? These are matters that the police will investigate. I am fascinated by the way you read words that you have not seen before. Why? Like what did I say? This this guy who is the assassin, you've added an extra D into his name <laughs> and dropped the first E and the G completely. It's because I don't know how to pronounce French, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I've given him a name that sounds right in my head. It's Dandre. Don, 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 Don Gris. I, Don, Don, Don Agree? Don Don Gray is what I would say, but Don Gray. Well, he's Don Dre now. Don Don Dre, yeah. Don Dre. His name's Don Dre. Yep. If people want to read along with me and they have things to say, you can email us at fifty fifty artsproduction.com and tell me I'm a fucking moron. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, so that is the report in the newspaper. So they've basically reported all these names and said these two can't possibly be guilty, which means they are. It's one of and them, yeah. they've also like thrown this poor other guy under the bus. <laughs> Who it's clearly not. Who clearly did not do it. As a matter of fact, the police investigation threw no light on the mystery. It was learned that Victor Dandre was a dangerous criminal. Oh, what? Oh shit. It was learned that Victor Dandre was a dangerous criminal, a drunkard and a debauchery. But as they proceeded with the investigation, the mystery deepened and new complications arose. In the first place, a young woman, Mademoiselle de Sinclèves, the cousin and sole heiress of the Countess, declared that the Countess, a month before her death, had written a letter to her and in it described the manner in which the black pearl was concealed. Oops. The letter, oh yeah, dee 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 dee. The letter disappeared the day after she received it. Who had stolen it? Dun, dun, dun. Again, the concierge related how she had opened the door for a person who had inquired for Dr. Harl. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
On being questioned, the doctor testified that no one had rung his bell. Then who was that person? An accomplice? The theory of an accomplice was thereupon adopted by the press and public and also by Ganimard, the famous detective. Lupin is at the bottom of this affair, he said to the judge. Bah! exclaimed the judge. You have Lupin on the brain. You see him everywhere. <laughs> I see him everywhere because... He is everywhere. <laughs> this guy's like uh, fucking uh, uh, Javert. Yep. <laughs> he's, he's like, all I can think about is Jean Valjean. It's all I can think about. Say rather that you see him every time you encounter something you cannot explain. Besides, you overlook the fact that the crime was committed at 20 minutes past 11 in the evening, as is shown by the clock, which the nocturnal visit mentioned by the concierge occurred at 3 o'clock in the morning. Ah, so he's like, the, the judge has already put together that it's two different people. Yep. <laughs> this judge should be a detective. Uh, <laughs> Officers of the law frequently form a hasty conviction as to the guilt of a suspected person. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. Some things really never do change. And then distort all subsequent discoveries to conform to their established theory. Wow, this is a little too topical. The deplorable antecedents of Victor Dandre, habitual criminal, drunkard, and rake, influenced the judge. And despite the fact that nothing new was discovered in corroboration of the earlier clues, his official opinion remained firm and unshaken. He closed his investigation, and a few weeks later, the trial commenced. It proved to be slow and tedious. The judge was listless, and the public prosecutor presented the case in a careless manner. Under those circumstances, Dondre's counsel had an easy task. He pointed out the defects and inconsistencies of the case for the prosecution and argued that the evidence was quite insufficient to convict the accused. Who had made the key, the indispensable key without which Dandre, on leaving the apartment, could not have locked the door behind him? Who had ever seen such a key, and what had become of it? Who had seen the assassin's knife, and where is it now? <laughs> In any event, argued the prisoner's counsel, the prosecution must move beyond any reasonable doubt that the prisoner committed the murder. The prosecution must show that the mysterious individual who entered the house at three o'clock in the morning is not the guilty party. To be sure, the clock indicated 11 o'clock. But what of that? I contend that proves nothing. The assassin could turn the hands of the clock to any hour he pleased and thus deceive us in regard to the exact hour of the crime. Victor Dandre was acquitted. He left the prison on Friday about dusk in the evening, weak and depressed by his six months imprisonment. Fuck, man. <laughs> that sucks. And now he's just wandering the streets as a very publicly accused, like... Yep. Idiot. Okay. The inquisition, the solitude, the trial, the deliberations of the jury combined to fill him with a nervous fear. At night, he had been afflicted with terrible nightmares, haunted by weird visions of the scaffold. He was a mental and physical wreck. Poor dude. Yeah, that does suck. Under the assumed name of Anatole Dufour, he rented a small room on the heights of... Montmartre, Mont 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 
Montmartre. Montmartre. I love French. It's my favorite language. Rented a small room in the Heights. In the Heights. Da 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 da. In the Heights. And lived by doing odd jobs wherever he could find them. He led a pitiful existence. Three times he obtained regular employment, only to be recognized and then discharged. See, that's why you don't fucking publish people's names in the newspaper. <laughs> yep. Sometimes he had an idea that men were following him, detectives, no doubt, who were seeking to trap and denounce him. He could almost feel the strong hand of the law clutching him by the collar. One evening, as he was eating his dinner at a neighboring restaurant, a man entered and took a seat at the same table. He was a person about 40 years of age and wore a frock coat of doubtful cleanliness. He He ordered soup, vegetables, and a bottle of wine. That's my kind of man. Yeah, I don't care if he stinks. (laughs) It's good. After he had finished his soup, he turned his eyes on Dondre and gazed at him intently. Dondre winced. He was certain that this was one of the men who had been following him for several weeks. What did he want? Dondre tried to rise but failed. His limbs refused to support him. The man poured himself a glass of wine and then filled Dondre's glass. The man raised his glass and said, To your health, Victor Dondre. Victor started in alarm and stammered. I, 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 no, 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 I, I swear to you. You swear what? That you are not yourself, the servant of the countess? Uh, what servant? Uh, my, my name is Dufour, uh, ask the proprietor. He's really good at lying, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Anatole Dufour to the proprietor of this restaurant, but Victor Dondre to the officers of the law. That's not true. Uh, Someone has lied to you. The newcomer took a card from his pocket and handed it to Victor, who read it. Grimaldin, ex-inspector of the detective force, private business transacted. Victor shuddered as he said, You are connected with the police? No, not now, but I have a liking for the business and I continue to work at it in a manner more profitable. From time to time, I strike upon a golden opportunity, such as your case presents. My case? Yes, yours. I assure you it is a most promising affair, provided you are inclined to be reasonable. But what if I'm not reasonable? Oh, my good fellow, you are not in a position to refuse me anything, I may ask. <laughs> this, he definitely is a confident man. Yep. What, what is it you want, stammered Victor, fearfully. Well, I will inform you in a few words. I am sent by Mademoiselle de... That's right. I am sent by Mademoiselle de Sinclaves, the heiress of the Countess... Dylan. <laughs> what for? To recover the black pearl. Black pearl? That you stole. But I haven't got it. You have it. If I had, then I would be the assassin. You are the assassin. Dondre showed a forced smile. 
Fortunately for me, monsieur, the assize court was not of your opinion. The jury returned a unanimous verdict of acquittal, and when a man has a clear conscience and 12 good men in his favor, the ex-inspector seized him by the arm and said, No fine phrases, my boy. Now listen to me and weigh my words carefully. You will find they are worthy of your consideration. Now, Dandre, three weeks before the murder, you abstracted the cook's key to the servant's door and had a duplicate key made by a locksmith named Outard. 244 Rue Opkampf. It's a lie. It's a lie, growled Victor. No person has seen that key. There is no such key. Here it is. (laughs) After a silence, Grimaldin continued. You killed the countess with a knife purchased by you at the Bazaar de la République on the same day as you ordered the duplicate key. It has a triangular blade with a groove running from end to end. That is all nonsense. You are simply guessing at something you don't know. No one ever saw the knife. Here it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fuck. (laughs) Victor Dandre recoiled. The ex-inspector continued. There are some spots of rust on it. Shall I tell you how they came there? Well, you have a key and a knife. Who can prove that they belong to me? The locksmith and the clerk from whom you bought the knife. I have already refreshed their memories, and when you confront them, they cannot fail to recognize you. His speech was dry and hard with a tone of firmness and precision. Dandre was trembling with fear, and yet he struggled desperately to maintain an air of indifference. Is that all the evidence you have? Oh, no, not at all. I have plenty more. For instance, after the crime, you went out the same way you had entered, but in the center of the wardrobe room, being seized by some sudden fear, you leaned against the wall for support. How do you know that? No one could know such a thing, argued the desperate man. The police know nothing about it, of course. They never think of lighting a candle and examining the walls, but if they had done so, they would have found on the white plaster a faint red spot, quite distinct, however, to trace it in the imprint of your thumb. Oh, look! (laughs) Fingerprints. Fingerprints. Found it. Yep. The cops didn't think of it. To trace it in the imprint of your thumb, which had, which you had pressed against the wall while it was wet with blood. Now, as you are well aware, under the Bertillon system, thumb marks are one of the principal means of identification. Hey, look at that. <laughs> Victor Dandre was livid. Great drops of perspiration rolled down his face and fell upon the table. He gazed with a wild look at the strange man who had narrated the story of his crime as faithfully as if he had been an invisible witness to it. Overcome and powerless, Victor bowed his head. He felt that it was useless to struggle against this marvelous man. So he said, Oh my God, it was him the whole time. We were wrong. We were wrong. (laughs) So he said, How much will you give me if I give you the pearl? Nothing. You are joking. Or or do you mean that I should just give you an article worth thousands and hundreds of thousands and get nothing in return? You will get your life. 
Is that nothing? The unfortunate man shuddered. Then Grimaldin added in a milder tone. Come, Dandre. That pearl has no value in your hands. It is quite impossible for you to sell it. So what is the use of your keeping it? There are pawnbrokers, and someday I will be able to get something for it. But that day may be too late. Why? Because by that time, you may be in the hands of the police, and with the evidence that I can furnish, the knife, the key, the thumb mark, what will become of you? Victor rested his head on his hands and reflected. He felt that he was lost. Ir irremediably? Irremediably? Like, without remedy? With, uh, yeah. irrem irremediably. Irremediably. Say that again? Irremediably. Fuck, that's a weird one. <laughs> yeah, it is. Irremediably. 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 There it is. Irremediably. Irremediably. I have to sing it. I have to like sing it. Irremediably. He felt that he was lost. Irremediably lost. And at the same time, a sense of weariness and depression overcame him. He murmured. He, he murmured. murmured. <laughs> he went to Philadelphia and marched in the January 1st parade. I, I love that I got through irremediably, but I fucked up murmured. <laughs> like, you know, whatever. He murmured faintly. When must I give it to you? Tonight, within an hour. If I refuse... If you refuse, I shall post this letter to the Procurer of the Republic, in which letter Mademoiselle de Sinclair denounces you as the assassin. Dandre poured out two glasses of wine, which he drank in rapid succession. <laughs> <laughs> then, rising, said, Pay the bill and let us go. I have had enough of the cursed affair. Night had fallen. The two men walked down the Rue Lepique and followed the exterior boulevards to the direction of the Place de l'Antille. They pursued their way in silence. Victor had a stooping carriage and a dejected face. When they reached the Parc Monsieur, he said, We are near the house. Pablo! You only left the house once before your arrest, and that was to go to the tobacco shop. Here it is, said Dandre in a dull voice. They passed along the garden wall of the Countess's house and crossed a street on a corner in which stood the tobacco shop. A few steps further on, Dandre stopped. His limbs shook beneath him, and he sank to a bench. Well, what now? demanded his companion. It is there. Where? Come now, no nonsense. There, in front of us. Where? Between two paving stones. Which? Look for it. Ooh, <laughs> sassy, sassy murderer. <laughs> Which stones? Victor made no reply. Ah, I see, exclaimed Grimaldin. You want me to pay for the information. No, but I am afraid I will starve to death. So that is why you hesitate? 
Well, I'll not be hard on you. How much do you want? Enough to buy a steerage pass to America. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, hundred francs to keep me until I get work there. You shall have two hundred. Now speak. <laughs> Count the paving stones to the right of the sewer hole. The pearl is between the twelfth and the thirteenth. In the gutter? Yes, close to the sidewalk. Grimaldin glanced around to see if anyone were looking. Some tram cars and pedestrians were passing, but bah, they will never suspect anything. He opened his pocket knife and thrust it between the 12th and 13th stones. And if it is not there, he said to Victor, it must be there unless someone saw me stoop down and hide it. Could it be possible that the black pearl had been cast into the mud and filth of the gutter to be picked up by the first comer? The black pearl of fortune? Oh no. <laughs> oh shit. How far down, he asked. About ten centimeters. He dug up the wet earth. The point of his knife struck something. He enlarged the hole. <laughs> he enlarged the hole with his finger. <laughs> It's always a good first step. Yeah, but you don't want to strike something hard in there. That's a, you hit something. You hit something not good. Generally, <laughs> I guess I don't have a lot of um, experience of thrusting my finger into <laughs> holes. Um, then he abstracted the black pearl from its filthy hiding place. Good. Here are your two hundred francs. I will send you the ticket for America. On the following day, the article was published in the Echo de France and was copied by the leading newspapers throughout the world. Yesterday, the famous Black Pearl came into the possession of Arsène Lupin, who recovered it from the murderer of the Countess Dillon. In a short time, facsimiles of that precious jewel will be exhibited in London, St. Petersburg, Calcutta, Buenos Aires, and New York. Arsène Lupin will be pleased to consider all propositions submitted to him through his agents. <laughs> so he likes to get propositioned. Ah, so he's a dirty, dirty whore too. I like it. And that is how crime is always punished and virtue rewarded, said Arsène Lupin after he had told me the foregoing history of the Black Pearl. Point of order. In this yes. case... Two crimes were committed. Neither yes. one was punished. And nope. in fact, no virtue was rewarded anywhere. No. And uh, both of them actually have better lives for it because the the thief or the, the murderer was paid 200 francs and was given a ticket to New York. So he basically got to restart his life yep. as if nothing ever happened. And Arsène Lupin is now considered a hero and uh, is being paid for uh, like by these museums yep. to like display. I mean, I guess the only virtue is that he solved the crime, but he didn't actually tell anyone the truth. So No. Yeah. He solved it for himself. So no virtue was there. Nobody ended up being punished for the murder, which is no. by far which is the worst of the two crimes. 
And he ended up with the black pearl, which he had broken into the apartment in the first which, place yeah, to steal. He, he committed breaking and entering in an attempt to steal, and he was just too late. Amazing. Good times. <laughs> See? Crime does pay. <laughs> it does. Why, why don't more people just go into a life of burglary? And that is how you, under the assumed name of Grimaldin, ex-inspector of the detectives, were chosen by fate to deprive the criminal of the benefit of his crime. Exactly. And I confess that the affair gives me infinite satisfaction and pride. <laughs> the 40 minutes that I passed in the apartment of the Countess Dillon after learning of her death were the most thrilling and absorbing moments of my life. That's pretty fucked up. That's pretty it's, twisted. That's I spent really 40 twisted. minutes in a bedroom with a corpse. It was with awesome. A, it was really cool. And my throbbing rod was... <laughs> throbbing knob. Throbbing knob, not. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I just you're... hit the nail on the head there a little too much. No, you're just you're just giving him more credit than he deserves. Oh, it's yes. not, it's not a rod. It's a knob. It's a knob. Yeah, he's got small dick energy. He's, he's compensating <laughs> for some stuff. In those forty minutes, involved as I was in a most dangerous plight. I calmly studied the scene of the murder and reached the conclusion that the crime must have been committed by one of the house servants. I also decided, in order to get the pearl, that servant must be arrested. And so I left the Wayne's coat button. Oh, he, like, set him up! Yep. That's funny. So I left the wainscot button. It was necessary also for me to hold some convincing evidence of his guilt. So I carried away the knife, which I found upon the floor, which was stupid. Who The fucking murderer left the knife there. <laughs> so on top of everything else, this guy is just terrible at being a criminal. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's hilarious. So I carried away the knife, which I found upon the floor, and the key, which I found in the lock. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, this guy did not think things through. He did not. He very much did not keep a cool head when the blood started flying. No. I closed and locked the door and erased the finger marks from the plaster in the wardrobe closet. In my opinion, that was one of those flashes of genius, I said, interrupting. <laughs> Of genius, if you wish. <laughs> yes, he's he's very uh, modest, this Arsene Lupin. Yep. But I flatter myself. It would not have occurred to the average mortal. <laughs> <laughs> to frame instantly the two elements of the problem, an arrest and an acquittal. To make use of the formidable machinery of the law to crush and humble my victim and reduce him to a condition in which, when free, he would be certain to fall into the trap I was laying for him. Poor devil. Poor devil, you say, Victor Dondre, the assassin. He might have descended to the lowest depths of vice and crime if he had retained the Black Pearl. Now... He lives. Think of that. Victor Dandre is alive. And you have the Black Pearl. 
He took it out of one of the secret pockets in his wallet, examined it, gazed at it tenderly, and caressed it with loving fingers. <laughs> wow. I think he is getting a throbbing knob again. <laughs> Sometimes finding the right little... Little little, no little knob? Little, <laughs> little pearl to touch oh. is all it takes to get going. That is my new wor word for clitoris now. <laughs> Can you find the black pearl? <laughs> Which is funny because in the Pirates movie, it's the ship that like disappears and yep. stuff. The Black Pearl. Yeah. He's just, he's caressing the pearl with loving fingers. <laughs> so it well, that's nice. That's nice of him. He gazed, caressing it with loving fingers and sighed as he said, What cold Russian prince, what vain and foolish Raja may someday possess this priceless treasure? Or perhaps some American millionaire is destined to become the owner of this morsel of exquisite beauty that once adorned the fair bosom of Leontine Zalti, the Countess Dillon. The end. I like that the, 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 the word that I couldn't say the entire time, so I said Dillon, was the last word of the story. Yep, that seems appropriate. Seems right. I, I don't know what the moral of that story was, except that crime does pay. Yeah. But, Which, but, if I remember I guess, correctly, was kind of the moral of the last one of his stories that we read, too. Yeah. I guess the one thing that he did say is that now uh, Don Dre has to live with what he did. Like, if he'd been put in prison, or if he'd been convicted, he would have been hung. Right. And he would have been, you know, like, kind of released but now he lives with his guilt and the fact that somebody out there knows that he did it. Um, so he, so like in, yeah, it's except kind of, that what, it's he kind also, of, what he also said is that if I'd let him keep the pearl, he might've fallen into the darkest depths of crime. Never mind he that money. he murdered someone. That's about as dark depths as it goes. That is very true. I think it's interesting. <laughs> Lupin clearly has a very skewed moral compass. Well, obviously. <laughs> so, listener, what did you think the moral of that story was? Because I'm racking my brain, and I'm pretty sure the moral is no matter how deceptive you are, there's always someone out there who's better than you are. So just So like, don't commit crimes because Arsene Lupin will expose you and then you have to live with it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Or maybe it just doesn't have a moral and maybe it's just there are some shitty people in the world, so watch out. <laughs> maybe the moral is crime pays, but not always as much as you think it's Crime gonna. pays, but maybe it doesn't pay you. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what the uh, the moral of that was, but uh, Arsene Lupin is a uh, interesting fella. <laughs> yeah. And I still suck at French. So that's... <laughs> so all's well that ends well. Yeah. And you can touch my black pearl. I'm just keeping up yeah, the... No, 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 I'm just rolling through, and I think the first question I'm going to ask is, why is your pearl black? <laughs> um, I went tanning. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
So, uh, so do please email us and let us know what you thought about. I hate that everything story. that just happened, <laughs> and uh, particularly what the moral was. And of course, let us know that other thing we talked about at the beginning: how you used the word "utkiare" in a sentence this week. Uh, so while uh, while you're in the process of emailing us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or, or shooting us a message on social media, please include in the body or in the subject line of that message this week's secret passcode, which is repress the throbbing. Repress the throbbing. That sounds like something to be in a sermon at church. <laughs> repress the throbbing. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, that's all I've got for today. Anything before that's we all, sign off? That's all I got. That's all I got. All right. Well, in that case, until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Fum, fum. Fum, fum. Fum, 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 fum. Oh, repress. Stop. <laughs>